Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Actively Speaking. And today uh, we have not one, not two, but three guests joining me, uh, all from our systematic strategies team at Epic. Uh, they are Lillian Kwa, Lin Lin, and Simon Zheng. So welcome, everybody. Hi, Steve. Good, Good to be here. Yes. We're going to talk today about the topic we're calling data-driven investing and the environment we've been living through for the last three, four months with the COVID pandemic has provided a really good uh, example of, of how you can use data, innovative uses of data in investing. So we're going to start by talking about that, the, uh, the COVID data, but whenever we'll broaden the discussion out a little bit later to, to talk you know, beyond this environment, how interesting uses of data going forward. So let's start by talking about the pandemic and, and the data. So your team has been making some presentations, both internally and externally, about what's going on with the pandemic. And interestingly, you've been basing all of this on your analysis on an extensive data set that you built in-house. So why don't we start by talking about why you chose to do that? Why did you build your own data set rather than simply relying on, you know, some, some well-known data set that's, that's out there? Thanks, Steve. This is a really good question. Nowadays, we have a lot of websites reporting extensive information related to COVID. So it's very natural to ask, why bother? But this was not the case uh, before March when this viral outbreak became a pandemic. So like everyone, we began to follow the development of COVID-19 cases in China in January. We very quickly realized that this outbreak could be a very unique and significant challenge for investment. And we were disproportionately exposed to this risk in our EM portfolio, where China is 40% of the benchmark weight. So in order to understand this new risk, the biggest problem at that time is actually lack of data. We had to contend with whatever scattered or sometimes contradictory data, data points which news media chose to report. So I remember a few days after the Wuhan lockdown on January 23rd, I found out about a Chinese website called Dingxiangyuan or DXY. You can see it in the footnotes of almost all the prominent global COVID tracking platform now. It is a website created for and by healthcare professionals in China and has a great reputation of being honest and timely. The website just started to collate different daily case data in China on a national, provincial, and city level. So it is in Chinese and provides only current day updates. So I went to Simon and asked if there's a way to scrape the web page and put together a time series data set going forward. He took a look at the website and said, sure. So a day later, he created the first Tableau dashboard. We have three pages at a time. Now we have a process that automatically brings in data from many different websites and updates uh, for the 50 pages of global reports on a daily basis. Okay, so it sounds like at the very beginning, there really was no data available out there. As time went on, more and more data did start becoming available. Why did you choose to continue going on with, with building your own database, essentially? Uh, 
another great question. Just like cooking, right? Everybody has more or less the same ingredients, but different dishes require different ways to cook. So for COVID, our goal has always been from an investment standpoint, how to further our understanding of a new and rapidly evolving risk event. So first, we need a system to efficiently track new developments globally. From one or two glances, we want to be able to have a basic understanding of the big picture every day and put it in an appropriate kind of perspective. So for example, if you want to know the latest cases and then how it compares versus recent trends or versus other countries or even versus important country benchmarks such as uh, China and Italy. So in that case, I really did not see any other data providers out there that can create such a powerful visualization to fit our own purposes. So efficient and effective visualization is really our reason number one. And second, uh, by having the data at our full disposal, it really creates a tremendous flexibility for deeper and more meaningful research. So this year, COVID has been a permanent subject in our research meetings. So together, we have come up with quite a few important questions that helped us eventually make investment decisions. So many of these questions require us to combine information from different sources. This is impossible if we don't have our own data sets. And lastly, we believe COVID will leave a mark in investment history, and we need this data for further of future research and, and also post-mortem analysis to get us better prepared the next time. Lillian, maybe you could talk a bit about what were some of the biggest challenges that your team had to overcome in putting this data together. Yeah, sure. You know, I think whenever you're dealing with a rare event like a pandemic, it, it can be overwhelming to sort out what's going to be materially important versus just, just interesting. In fact, I know a number of quant investors who decided to become amateur epidemiologists and spent a lot of time trying to forecast the spread of the virus. But we decided not to do this. You know, for one thing, we don't have specific expertise in in viral epidemiology. You know, we also recognize early on that this is a pretty difficult task. I mean, there are lots of assumptions. You can get a wide range of potential outcomes. And it didn't seem like the right place to spend our research energy. You know, to us, the more important task was to quickly come up with a framework. And that the framework would tell us you know, what types of information to collect, how to interpret this information, and what specific portfolio actions to take. You know, I talked about this framework in some detail during a quarterly webinar last week, so I'll just keep my comments to the, to the process of data collection. I think the duration of the relevant data was really a big part of our research efforts, you know, in, in January and February and even going into March. It ended up being a collective learning process for our team. So while we're really fortunate to have data scientists such as Simon on staff, we also have sector specialists. You know, in fact, I want to give a shout out to Jerome Vander Gintz, who covers healthcare for our team, because he's been particularly helpful. He's, he was on top of the clinical aspects of the virus from the very beginning. He continues to keep us informed about you know, progress on vaccinations and, and some of the more the medical issues uh, surrounding the, the virus and how we're going to fight it. Now, of course, you know, data curation is, is always an iterative process. You know, just because we want certain types of information doesn't mean that they're easy to get, or they come in the exact form that you want, or, or worse still, that they even exist at all. You know, in some cases, we have to triangulate. So we end up using different types of data to proxy for 
what we wanted to track. So really, that's a lot of the you know the difficulty you know on a day to day basis behind um, using data and on collecting it in a way that actually informs what we want to do. Simon, what were the challenges on the implementation side in terms of just getting the data in house and figuring out a way to to be able to access it and visualize it and so on? So from a technical perspective, I think the biggest challenge was not really in building out the process to ingest the disparate data sets or even to visualize it. That was actually very quick and pretty easy to do. I think the difficult part was maintaining some semblance of data quality. It was difficult because during the height of COVID, we were constantly introducing new data points and producing novel analysis, what felt like every other day. However, data quality is something we recognized pretty early on as important, something that we wanted to maintain and actively think about. And I think you'll be pretty hard-pressed to find perfect data anywhere in the real world. Those really only exist in academia. And I do think there's sort of an art in dealing with the issues that you find within any data set. So we have tried to adjust our numbers as countries change their definitions remove cases from the cumulative numbers and just the various little games they play. So obviously there will be issues that we cannot fully deal with. For example, when China changed the definition of what it meant to be COVID positive multiple times during the span of a single week. But we have tried to be vigilant in curating our data and build out this effective framework to ensure the quality of our data. And that's something that we do to this day. One of the bigger challenges we face is just ensuring the overall quality of our data. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. Well, Lynn, let's go back to you. I, I'm really curious. Once you had all this, you had overcome all these challenges, you had this data set that you continue to update every day. Have you found times when you were looking at your own data and finding perhaps a different picture than what was being presented to us in the general media? Right. I would say sometimes. Sometimes uh, it does give us a different and maybe more nuanced kind of interpretations of the data. Like for example, media tend to highlight day-to-day -day changes and really ignore the volatility or even seasonality in daily data. So when we are looking at our moving averages, that definitely can help us have a clear picture. Media sometimes also want to focus one or two aspects, for example, just the new cases, and ignore other relevant information like testing. So, for example, I remembered in late March, um, I think everybody underestimated the risk of COVID uh, in the EM countries such as India and Brazil. And at that time, just because the cases were low, but they didn't look at the testing capacity uh, in those countries, which were really poor. But more often, I would say our data really help us to validate and assign sometimes higher probability, probability to one versus uh, the other scenarios. And we definitely feel that we have a much more complete picture based on our own data and, and framework. For example, um, when we judge the vulnerability of a country or state related to COVID, we look at our scorecard, we have a table. Uh, it tells us the latest data and recent trends of not only the new cases, but also testing, uh, healthcare system capacity, and et cetera. So we are able to have a more reasonable guess and rate about what is actually happening. For example, when we see a surge in cases, 
how reliable is the case data? We can look at the cumulative testing with this population for hand. And we can also know whether the surge is the result of increasing testing or because of new spread, and or whether the, the hospitals have enough capacity to handle, and whether the surge will translate into higher fatality rate, etc. So all this in one table. So I really feel like the benefit is for us to have a higher conviction about the scenario analysis. Okay, let's turn the discussion now to how you've actually used all this data to help in making investment decisions. So, Lillian, can you talk a bit about any portfolio changes in positioning or individual stocks that you've made based on trends in the data? Yeah, sure. The positioning evolved as the data evolves. I mean, that's the simplest way to understand it. And it was, they were really driven by the types of research questions we were asking ourselves in January versus February versus March. Uh, I remember back in, in January, we were primarily concerned with the effect that the virus would like to have on the Chinese economy. It was already clear at that point that this was just a localized pandemic, but a national one. So, you know, it really was about understanding just how bad it was going to be. Now, by the end of February, we could also we could already see that the infection curve in China had already flattened. And when we looked at real-time measures of um, Chinese economic activity, you know, they were actually trending up. They were, there was a recovery that we could start to um, see in the data. So our expectation at the time was for things to normalize by, you know, beginning of April, perhaps the beginning of May. Now, that's not enough for actually making a portfolio decision. You know, understanding the macro picture is important, but we had to take the analysis to the next level. So what we did was ask our fundamental analysts to run these, you know, we call them stress scenarios on our portfolio holdings. And we found that a number of companies in our portfolio with you know, high exposure to China actually had more resilient businesses than, than the market seemed to be giving them credit for. And on this basis, we ended up increasing our positions in about you know, half a dozen companies. That was part of a broader portfolio rebalancing. You know, when we got into March, you know, the situation had changed quite, quite dramatically. It was you know, now a global pandemic. It was clear that we needed to focus on other countries. And as, uh, as Lynn mentioned, you know, we were pretty alarmed by what was happening in places like India and Indonesia, you know, that the number of confirmed cases were doubling at another pretty startling rate, I would say, even though these countries weren't even testing much at the time. In fact, I would say that they're still not testing enough today. Uh, and we could see that, you know, it wouldn't take very long for them to be overwhelmed by a spike in hospitalizations. It's not so much even the hospitalizations, like, you know, you know you're basically looking forward and saying, if you're seeing the surge, they're going to have to impose lockdown policies. And that is indeed is what happened in, in India, you know, by the end of March. So, you know, we proactively trimmed our exposure to these uh, two countries, and we allocated the proceeds to um, stocks located in other countries, which, you know, were basically dealing with the pandemic more successfully. That would include, you know, China, uh, Taiwan, uh, and South Korea. Now, I should point out that, you know, our positioning in March was not just driven by the, the case numbers or the COVID-related analysis that we were doing. We also looked at the downside risk forecasts that were coming out of our emerging markets country risk model. And that model was basically flashing red for Brazil and Mexico at the time. So we took our exposures to those countries down in our portfolio as well. Hard as it is to believe these days, living in the world we're in, uh, this will end someday, this whole COVID pandemic, and we won't need to be focusing so intently on all this pandemic-related data. But the use of 
alternate data sources and innovative uses of data is not going to go away, and that's uh, something we should talk about at the end here. So, what sort of what sort of alternative data sources are you developing for for use in investment decisions once we get past this this episode? And how big a role do you see this kind of data gathering and analysis playing in the future? Uh, well, in a nutshell, a lot. You know, I, I think there's no sense um, <laughs> that's going to be untouched by data and the uh, the power that these new techniques will bring. And in investing, which is really a very data-driven industry, I think the impact will be even more dramatic. You know, at some point, it's going to be table stakes. So let me just start with the data, right? So there's a notion of information out there, and there's more and more becoming available every year. I think if you look at you know, research budgets for alternative data, I mean, they've just quadrupled and coupled in, in a very short period of time. I don't see that actually turning uh, anytime soon. You know, for a firm of our size, our goal is not to look at everything, but to curate what's valuable for our investment process. Now, this, you know, requires a lot more judgment that you might think. You know, this is not the traditional quantitative research where you try to find things that work everywhere and at all times. You know, this, is, this is where you, the curation process becomes really, really critical. And, you know, it's not a bad thing. I think it's actually a way for us to differentiate ourselves and to get an edge. It really is about understanding, you know, what's valuable for your process and that's actionable. The three categories of data, which are, I think are hard priority for us, would be text. You know, so like, I would say most of the data that's out there is not numbers. It's actually text. So there's quite a bit of untapped information out there that we want to understand. We want to be able to, to use um, in a more powerful way. You know, we have quite a few um, natural language processing products ongoing that, that are aimed at getting us, you know, to that point. The other is, I guess, for lack of a better term, market dynamics, you know, and, and it really has to do with the, the actions of other investors. You know, so, you know, we have lots and lots of research on company fundamentals. I don't think as an industry, we spend enough time understanding what other investors in the market are doing, you know, how their position flows and whatnot. So I think that's, that's another area that particular interest to us. And finally, you know, we yes, we do have a lot of information on on financial information, uh, on financial metrics for for companies. But you know, I don't know if we really track them over time in the way that we need to. And I, I think in particular about uh, our pieces for specific companies, right? You have KPIs that an, an analyst might call out when they pitch a stock. I would say that you know most. Managers maybe don't track those KPIs as religiously as they, as they should. And that's a way that I think you can add a lot of value because, you know, the information is coming in in real time. It's pretty hard to, to, to go back and say, well, that's not what I really meant when, you know, it's already written down in a piece of paper. So that, that's another set of data that I think will be a, a high priority for us to, to tackle over the next couple of years. On the machine learning side, you know, it really, there are two things we're trying to get out of uh, these new techniques. One is just the model relationships in a more sophisticated way, uh, particularly relationships which are, are non-linear. Um, the other is to really leverage the adaptability that's sort of built into these systems, right? I, I think investors just have to be much more adaptable today. And machine learning can help because these systems by nature are, are responsive to new information. So that's a way that you can you know, almost automatically be a little quicker to react to changes in the market environment. So those would be the, you know, the, the two areas that I, I would be directing, you know, the research efforts for my team, you know, for the next few years. 
Okay. Simon, you're a, you're a data scientist. What is Epic doing to ensure that we are ready for this, this new landscape that Lillian has just described? So the data sets that are out there are really quite remarkable. And if there's a data set out there that you want and you can't find it, it's likely that you aren't looking hard enough. And all this data is what people are beginning to look at, and it's become an arms race for everyone to keep up and to understand what is out there, how to process it, and how to make investment decisions off of it. Uh, there's probably not one data set that exists that is the holy grail of everything, but it's about how we can take these disparate data sets, combine them in a thoughtful manner that will give us answers that we're looking for. And the big question is, now that you have all these huge data sets, how do you begin to efficiently process them and look for signal within them? And right now, our team has been working extremely hard on building out this new cloud environment on Microsoft Azure that will allow us to do everything that maybe I talked about. And on our team, Chris Keller has been leading that project and has done a really phenomenal job in getting everything set up. So we're still really in the early stages, but what we have seen so far is quite remarkable. And to really kind of make the processing of the data possible, you have you have really had to have two revolutions happen at the same time. And one is that computing power, hardware and software have had to go through a revolution and we've really seen that. And price has also fell off the cliff for storage. So right now we can go on the web and buy storage on something like Microsoft Azure for very cheap. And then when we're done, we can, that's it, we can just turn it off. But right now we're still in the early stages, but we are working actively on it. Okay, well, Simon and Lillian and Lynn, thank you very much for joining me. And we'll, we'll definitely want to check back at some point in the future because this all sounds really intriguing. I'm sure our listeners will be curious to, to know how this is progressing over time. So thank you all. Okay, and uh, we'll talk to everybody again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.